in the run-up to Easter, we're going to track the last week of Jesus' life together. And uh, we're going to do that through Matthew's Gospel. We've been reading it over the last two months through RBT. And so we want to track the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death and his resurrection in Matthew's Gospel. And we're going to visit three scenes and witness, well, visit three locations and witness three different scenes from uh, the Passion narrative. Uh, And these are familiar passages, but we pray that God would, uh, by his Holy Spirit, work to help us to just be refreshed by them, to see them more clearly, and to benefit from them again. So we're going to visit Gethsemane, Golgotha, and the grave. So... Because Matthew loves my alliteration, that's what we're doing now. It's not even just sermon points are alliterated, but whole series. Golgotha, uh, Gethsemane, Golgotha, and the grave. And really, Matthew chapter 26 to 28, like all of the Gospels, really are uh, some of the most holy ground in Scripture. Spurgeon once said that, Here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. It's a mystery like that which Moses saw in the burning bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And then Spurgeon says, no man can rightly expound these passages, for they are a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation, more than for human language. But we're going to attempt to understand them this morning. We're going to do that with, I hope, fresh awareness of the grace of God. Because Jesus' death in in history is, is the central point of history, but it's, it's the turning point of history, and it's also the climax of the Gospels. It's, to, it's the thing towards everything that Matthew has been writing and describing has been moving towards. Now, a little bit of context from Matthew 21, as we hopefully, if you've been reading through uh, the reading plan, you'll have noticed that Matthew 21, Jesus enters into Jerusalem amidst the Palm Sunday fanfare of Hosanna uh, and people laying down their coats and waving palm branches at him. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he begins to assert his authority over Jerusalem. So he goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. Uh, Then he begins to, uh, well, then he curses a fig tree. And then he begins to debate the religious leaders and the Jewish authorities. And he issues a series of woes and warnings to them that run up to the end of really Matthew 23. Then in Matthew 24 and 25, it's the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew's fifth chunk of Jesus' teaching that he records. And in this particular chunk, in chapters 24 and 25, he's addressing his disciples and he's telling his disciples uh, what's going to happen both in the, in the near future and in the distant future. It's kind of a prophetic portion of Matthew's gospel. And then in chapter 26, which is where we arrive, following on that sort of really long, if you've got a red letter Bible, you'll see it's page after page of red letters. Uh, Jesus has finished his extensive teaching towards his disciples. The Jewish religious leaders are really unhappy with him. They're they're jealous of his popularity. They don't like the fact that he's potentially a threat to their power. And they hate him for exposing their hypocrisy. And so they're planning to kill him. And that's what we find uh, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 26. Now we're going to join in verse 17. So will you read along with me? And we're going to read to chapter to the, to the end of verse 29, uh, and then we'll do a second chunk in a few moments. But here's what Matthew records for us in his gospel. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us or where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said to them, well, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, 
The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with all my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? And he answered and he said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. So now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So Passover has arrived, that big Jewish festival that commemorates how God has rescued his people from bondage in Egypt. That, that uh, description in Exodus 12 where, where the Jews would take a lamb, they would slaughter it and they would paint the blood of the lamb over their doorposts and on their lintels so that the angel of death would pass over them and they would then be free to leave Egypt and go out to worship the Lord. And so Jesus is sharing this Passover meal with his disciples, but in the midst of what the festivities that are going on, as they remember God's past deliverance, he begins to predict his betrayal and his desertion by the disciples. But he also uses the opportunity to institute the Lord's Supper. So he's using Passover to institute a new meal for God's people. And that new meal is something that is better and greater than the Passover. And in doing so, Jesus is effectively saying, listen, I'm giving you something far greater than the Exodus to remember. And he tells them of his impending death. And it's a picture of him being the ultimate Passover lamb. And Matthew is, is painting a picture for us in this short little um, piece of, uh, of a scene that before we get to Gethsemane because he's trying to tell us that at the beginning of the week where Jesus will die he's not at the hands of a murderous threat from Jewish religious leaders he's not at the hands of of a betrayer in his small circle of friends he's not at the hands of uncontrollable forces but he is at the hand of a sovereign God who is ordaining all the events that will take place over the coming 72 hours. And he is willingly submitting to those things as he chooses the path to the cross to redeem sinners like us. Now let's jump in again at verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
But Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Two ways we can organise this text this morning, and two, so two points that I want us to think about, and I borrowed these from a sermon I heard about 12 years ago from C.J. Mahaney, which, is, uh, which I think was then turned into his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. I think there's a chapter on it. And he talks about what Gethsemane meant for Jesus and what Gethsemane means for us. And so that's how we're going to organize our thoughts this morning. In verse 30, Jesus wraps up what's going on in the upper room of the Passover meal. And him and his disciples, they head out for a kind of after-dinner walk. And they go to the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And there... It's a familiar place to Jesus and the disciples. And he predicts that all of the disciples will fall away. But the disciples, uh, led by Peter's bravado, they say, no, we reject that prophetic kind of insight. And they deny that they will abandon him. But what we see is there's a progression in the text from Jesus predicting their denial to the fact that he ends up isolated and the first thing that we see is in, in what Gethsemane meant for Jesus is it was isolation. So he predicts their falling away. But then in verse 36, when they arrive at Gethsemane, he separates from his disciples, from Peter and James and John, and he withdraws to pray. And he commands Peter, James and John to watch, to pray, to join him in praying uh, so that they might not fall into temptation, so that they would be ready for what they're about to face as well. And three times he returns to them and he discovers that they've fallen asleep while he has faced anguish. And you can almost hear the despair in his voice in, vo in verse 40 where he says, could, could you not watch? Could you not just pray just even for one hour? What, could you not just do that for me and with me? But then we didn't read this, but the progression continues 
in verse 56 at the end where Judas turns up and he kisses Jesus on the cheek and Jesus is betrayed and they, the, the angry mob with clubs and swords that are a mixture of Roman soldiers and kind of temple guards, they seize Jesus, they arrest him and they take him away and we're told in verse 36, then all the disciples left him and fled. And so the first thing that Gethsemane means for Jesus is that he is alone. He's alone. The disciples flee and they abandon him as he is carted off to the high priest and then on to the governor. And Matthew gives us this insight because he wants us to see that Jesus didn't just feel alone in that moment, but he truly suffered alone. Just as that song uh, that we sang just a few moments ago said, it was for me in the garden and he suffered alone. He bled and died for me, but he suffered alone. And Matthew points that out for us. It was it was a moment of isolation from those who were dearest to him on the earth and as we'll see in the coming weeks from his father in heaven too. So what does Gethsemane mean for Jesus? It meant isolation and abandonment but it also means distress. If you've been tracking Matthew's gospel through the, the weeks that we've been reading uh, in RBT, you will see that up to this point, Jesus has been healing and forgiving and teaching with authority, and he's been delivering people from demonic powers, and he's been calming storms, and he's been walking on water, as the video showed us. He's been multiplying bread and fish and feeding everybody fish finger sandwiches. He's been standing up and debating with the Jewish religious leaders and he's been transfigured into radiant glory. But in verse 36 of chapter 26, something changes and Jesus says, I'm overwhelmed with sorrow and with trouble. And there's a contrast in, in, even in the short passage that we read. So if you go back to there was calm and, and peace in the upper room as they celebrated the Passover and then as they sang hymns together. And now the scene at Gethsemane, the singing has stopped and the peace has dissipated and anguish grips Jesus like never before. He's overwhelmed to the point of death. He, he, he goes on in verse 39, Matthew, to record that he goes on to pray and he collapses in a heap on the ground. And three times he cries out in prayers that reveal emotional distress. Now, why? Jesus knew all along. We said, we said right at the beginning that the, the plan, he knew the plan from the very beginning. He he'd created the plan from before it the foundation of the world with the Father and the Spirit. And so why now, in the midst of what's happening, is he so distressed? There's no lament quite like this lament. And if we were to look at Luke's gospel, we would see again in the song that we sang that it appeared that Jesus was so distressed that he was sweating drops of blood. And I think the answer is this, the Passover feast that they had been celebrating was over, but the sacrifice that it symbolized and what it pointed towards, the, the reality of that now had struck Jesus afresh, I think. He's aware that he's facing something more than just simply death. He's beginning to experience in all of his humanity. Notice how he says in verse uh, 41, that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's a, it's a reference to his humanity. In all of his humanity, he's, he, the reality of being a substitute sin bearer for those who God has chosen and called is beginning to weigh, as you would expect, very heavily on him. And at Gethsemane, we're Jesus is confronted like never before with the deepest and, and ugliest and ultimate agony of Calvary. 
an agony that goes infinitely beyond any physical aspect of the suffering that he faced. And it's captured in that, in that image of the cup where he says, Father, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, we might think, well, what does he mean by cup? But in the Old Testament, the, the image of a cup uh, frequently referred to God's punishment and to God's wrath upon someone. So in, in somewhere like Isaiah 51, verse 17, Isaiah would say, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord's cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl and the cup of staggering. There was other, there's other places that you could go. Psalm 11, I think it is. Psalm 11, verse 6, where it, the psalmist describes a cup filled with fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. That the, God, the cup of God's wrath is like a volcano in a teacup and Jesus is about to drink from it. It's been placed into his hand, a cup of God's wrath containing the full fierceness of God's hatred, his holy hatred and his punishment for human sin. And Jesus is about to drink it. Isaiah called it a cup of staggering. Jeremiah says the same thing, that the drinker of this cup shall drink and stagger and be crazed. And that's what we see here in Matthew's gospel. That as Jesus stares into the cup that is given to him by his Father, he comes face to face with the abhorrent reality of bearing our iniquity and sin and of being the object of God's full and furious wrath. One commentator on Matthew's Gospel says that in Gethsemane, Jesus came to be with the Father to pray, but he found hell rather than heaven opened before him. And he was in distress. So Gethsemane meant isolation. And in that isolation, he was distressed to the point of sorrow. But it also meant something else. Resolve. We see that three times Jesus calls out to God the Father for an alternative. To avoid the cup. To avoid having to drink it. And yet God answers his prayer with silence. We see Jesus' response in verse 39 and in verse 32 where the refrain is this. Not my will, but as you will. Not my will, but your will be done. In that moment of isolation, in that moment of distress, Jesus recognized that this plan of salvation where he would die on a cross was the only way to end God's holy hostility towards sinners like you and me. It was the only way in which we could be reconciled back to God. And because there was no alternative, he said, okay, your will be done. Imagine if you were there at the scene watching this. If you, if you were there 2,000 years ago in that garden and you were watching Jesus, if you hadn't fallen asleep, like Peter, James and John, but we probably would have. But if you hadn't have fallen asleep and you would have watched him and you'd have heard him praying, let this cup pass before me, he could have every right to have stopped praying and turned to you and looked you in the eye and said, this is your cup. You've got to get on and drink it. You deserve this. 
I don't deserve this. You have lived in defiance of God your entire life. You have hated him. You've opposed him. You've rejected him. You've rebelled against him. You deserve to drink this. And yet I'll take it. And when Jesus cries out, it is finished, John 19, he means he's drunk every last drop of the cup. It means that everything that God had put in that cup, that volcano in a teacup that Jesus was about to drink, it means he drank every drop. It was all spent. It was all exhausted. It was dry so that you and I might be free and forgiven. And there's no more wrath for us to face. No more wrath for us to face. No more punishment awaiting us because of our sin. Jesus, with resolve, paid it all. That's what Gethsemane means for him. Isolation and distress, but resolve to save people from their sins. Now, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? Well, I recognize, I think there's two things that we should recognize in this passage. We should see God's love for us in Jesus' darkest hour. We should recognize God's love for us in Jesus' darkest hour. Gethsemane reminds us of the seriousness and the nature of our sin and the punishment that we deserve. But it also points us to the love of Jesus for each and every one of us. For in the garden, Jesus submitted himself to God's judgment that we deserved, that our sin required. And he embraced God the Father's will to drink the cup and he, that was thrust into his hand. And he chose to be our substitute and he chose to bear our sin and he did it all because he loved us. Think about Galatians 2.20, where Paul writes, The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You know, we can be so detached from the Garden of Gethsemane, we can think, well, what's really this got to do with me? But the reminder of Gethsemane is that it's my sin that cuts me off from God, not just sin in general. It's your sin and my sin. My sin cuts me off from God. Your sin cuts you off from God. It's not just that the world is generally sinful and so we're all generally cut off, although that's true, but your sin cuts you off from God and my sin cuts me off from God. And my hard-heartedness and my spiritual numbness those are the things that oppose God and demean God and stand against God. And your spiritual numbness and hard-heartedness is what stands opposed to God and demeans God. And I am lost and perishing. And you are lost and perishing. It's not just that the world in a general way is perishing, but we as individuals are cut off from God and spiritually numb and hard-hearted and lost and perishing. And yet... In that garden, Jesus pays the highest price possible to give us the greatest gift possible. As we looked at last week, John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. One commentator says, Matthew does not show us the agony of Jesus to arouse our pity or to remind us simply of Jesus' humanity 
but to help us to see again the love that Jesus has for us in dying for our sins. We will never have to suffer what our Saviour suffered in Gethsemane or at Calvary for the very reason that everything that he did, he did out of love for us as our substitute on our behalf. And so Gethsemane, what does it mean for us? It it shows us God's love. But it also shows us God's care for us in our darkest hour. So it shows God's love for us in his darkest hour, but it shows God's care for us in our darkest hour. In Gethsemane, we see that Jesus was fully human, that his flesh was weak, his anguish and his sorrow and his distress was very real. His prayers were cries of weak humanity, but his obedience and his submission to the Father was was as a real man. This wasn't him doing it in his divine nature. This was him in his humanity, in his flesh. It was on full display and in his darkest hour as he resolved to drink the cup of God's wrath for our sins, we see a glimpse that as he suffered, it's, it's what the writer to the Hebrews can say in, in Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who can identify with us in every way and was tempted just like we are. Tempted to turn away and yet was without sin. And he did all of that so that we could approach the throne of grace with confidence and find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So in Jesus' darkest hour, we can draw comfort and hope in the midst of our darkest hour because of Gethsemane and because of the cross we know that Christ is with us he's not and he's not an unknown stranger he's a loving savior now of course we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow we don't know the circumstances of our lives the things that will come and go or remain unchanged but we can know this in Gethsemane And at the cross, we have someone who has walked a similar path of suffering and pain to us. And he can identify with us. He can sympathize with us. And he can give us hope and grace in the midst of our pain. We've got someone who can meet with us, who understands us, and who can sympathize and sustain us in our suffering. And we've got someone who has bound himself to us in bonds of unbreakable love. And we've got someone to whom we can flee and find refuge and mercy and grace in time of need. And as we make this quick visit to Gethsemane, may we all know the love and care of Christ for us. Let's pray.